1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 20. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that, so that you may, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for, for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series that we are calling Rooted, and uh, it is a series through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, the reason that we have felt led to preach through the book of 1 Timothy is because we are in a season of our church where we are uh, pursuing uh, maturing as a church and coming out from our mother church and uh, having our own spiritual leadership in place and standing on our own two legs. And this uh, is a book of the Bible that is, a, is about a church that is a maturing church. And we have uh, felt it necessary uh, to be here for this season. So uh, uh, we invite you to, to join in with us today. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, my wife and I uh, have what I might call different tastes in shows that we like to watch. Can anybody resonate with that? Your spouse uh, has a different taste in the shows that you like to watch. Well, recently my wife has gotten into this uh, show that's pretty good. Uh, it's called This Is Us. Uh, some of you have seen that. Some of you have not seen that. But let me just cut straight to the chase. Every time you turn on This Is Us, I mean, it is like an ugly cry fest in our living room. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, not like just crying a little tear. It's like ugly crying. I mean, like uncontrollable sobbing in our living room. And she puts me through this torture week in, week out. But it's been good. Here's, here's what I've learned from the show. There is a, there's a relationship, and I can't go into the whole thing, and I don't want to give too many spoilers if you're kind of into that as well, but there's a complicated relationship, many complicated relationships in the show. One of them is between this guy named Randall, who's an adopted son, and uh, his biological father that he meets when he's 33. And uh, the truth of this relationship comes out into how his, his, his biological mother and father met and how uh, they got addicted to drugs and ended up giving Randall up for adoption. And uh, this, this relationship kind of unfolds um, and love is transmitted to each one of those as they, as, they, as they delve into the truth together. And what I've become increasingly aware of is that truth and love are two sides of the same coin. Uh, truth and love, truth cannot be uh, uh, effectively communicated without love, and love cannot be effectively communicated without truth. And this is what I think the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy about today. So here's the big idea of where we're going today. When taught in love, gospel truth changes lives. When taught in love, gospel, lo- gospel truth changes life. So um, in 1 Timothy, we've got a big chunk of Scripture today, but I think it needs to all go together because it's telling this story about this church in Ephesus. And to give you a little context into what we talked about last week is there's a few characters at play here. There's the Apostle Paul who's written this letter. Uh, he went and preached the gospel uh, uh, to, 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 the, to, the, to the Mediterranean world. And uh, one of the disciples that he made was this young man named Timothy. Now, Timothy ends up kind of growing up in the gospel. He's converted under Paul's teaching and ends up being discipled by Paul for the better part of 20 years. Now, Ephesus is this key city uh, in, in the expansion of the gospel in the world at this time. And in Ephesus, uh, there is some problems in the church. And one of the problems that he talks about today is there's some false teaching going on in the church. There's some false doctrine that's being communicated and it needs to be dealt with. And so he sends young, timid, uh, ill, uh, in his stomach, Timothy to the rescue. And we just said that, hey, it doesn't really matter uh, about the, the issues that you deal with personally, God can still use you. He sent this young, timid man who had problems, he had, he had GI problems in his stomach, and he sent him to proclaim the gospel and to help set the church at Ephesus straight. So I got three points that I want to kind of run on today. The first one is this we've got to look at the trouble uh, that's going on at the church in Ephesus. Then we need to look at the truth. What should be happening there? And then we're going to look at the testimony. And the testimony is that of the Apostle Paul about how the truth has changed his life. So, uh, first things first, the truth's being manipulated here and it needs to be dealt with. Um, so, what, what the Scriptures say is, is that Paul has urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus because it's impossible to help them communicate the truth if he goes on somewhere else. He needs to stay until things get straight in Ephesus. There needs to be a theology of presence. He needs to remain in Ephesus because their doctrine is unhealthy. It's disease-ridden. And in our culture today, we kind of have a problem with with the word doctrine, because we don't like anyone telling us what to do. It's not just millennials, it's really a little bit of everybody. Uh, and even worse, dogma. 
uh, dogmatic theology, which basically says, hey, this is the absolute truth. What are you going to do with it kind of a theology? Well, that's what the Bible says. And so, you know, as we move into this, we have this problem. But we're seeing uh, there's some very strong statements that Paul makes to Timothy about that church. I mean, he says things like uh, Hymenius and Alexander, because they're teaching false things, I've handed them over to Satan. I mean, what stronger statement could you make about someone than that? I've handed them over to Satan. And he, and he communicates this idea that there are a lot of things that are contrary to the sound doctrine that the, te- that, that the Scriptures teach. And here's the truth. You know, sound doctrine, uh, when you look at the Greek behind that word sound, it really means healthy doctrine. And so what Paul's communicating is this, is that wrong doctrine eats away at your spiritual health. It eats away at what God has in mind for you. Uh, in other words, uh, if, you, if you feel right now in your life a tremendous lack of, of the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, if you feel a lack of those in your, in your life, and I'm not talking about just a momentary lapse, but you would just say, hey, Ryan, I've never really experienced those things. Um, you, you might have some disease-ridden teaching uh, that's underlying those things. Um, and so what Paul is saying is that Timothy, the elders have to protect the church there. Because if we get wrong teaching, we can't have a healthy church. If we get teaching that's contrary to sound, healthy doctrine, we can't have a healthy church. And uh, I think one of the temptations for the church today is, uh, is to present... Uh, the truth of the Bible in such a way where we can fully grasp and uh, and and um, fully grasp all of all of its uh, essence, um, and so sometimes we're tempted to truncate the truth of God down into these trite, little, cute, culturally relevant sayings. And what we do in those moments is is we we present a truth that we can grow out of. But what God gives us in the Bible is a truth that we have to grow into. Because God is God. And there's a lot of life that we experience, friends, that is just mysterious right now. We don't understand why we endure the things that we endure. We don't understand why things that are happening in our culture are happening. But God gives us truth that we have to go grow into. And as Paul says in another place in the Scriptures, uh, this is because we see in part right now. We don't see the full picture. We don't see the whole thing. So why would we expect to be able to understand the whole thing now. But what we do know is this, is that we know enough to live lives of godliness. So I want to just quickly give you four traits of false teaching. Uh, and these are, just, these are just things that I've, um, <clears throat> that I've seen over the years and, uh, and other teachers of the Scriptures have uh, thought of as well. The first one is this. I'm going to go through these kind of quick. Uh, teaching that contradicts the Bible. So if you hear a teaching... Uh, they directly contradicts what the Scriptures say. It's, it cannot be in accordance with sound doctrine. And that sounds like really oversimplistic. I get that. But you would be surprised what, what, what folks preach. So if it contradicts the Bible, it can't be from God. Um, the second one is this. Teaching that is void of Jesus and the cross. Uh, this one is so prevalent in our culture that we can hardly recognize it. It's teaching that focuses on self-helpism, 
uh, pragmatism, moralism, legalism, nationalism, any ism basically. Any ism is a schism, all right? Any ism is, is you're pretty much going to find that it's not gospel centered teaching. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says it like this The motto of all true servants of God must be, We preach Christ and Him crucified. A servant without Christ, and a sermon without Christ in it, is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Pretty strong statement. So, what are the implications of that kind of teaching for us? You ought to be convicted when you come and hear the Word of God. Because just like any loving father disciplines his son, the father disciplines us. And we hear things that are unpleasant. Jesus never leaves us in despair though. He doesn't leave us in despair, but He does convict us. He lovingly disciplines us through His Word. Next, teaching that divides instead of unifies. This is one of the things that was happening in Ephesus. Uh, we see in verse, verses 5 and 6, He says, uh, you know, certain people have, have uh, uh, by teaching these things, or swerving from these things, have wandered into vain discussion. So basically, they focused on things that Jesus never intended the church to focus on. They've got on this rabbit trail, and it's not even the Bible. So we want to focus, we want to be a first things church. We want to focus on the main things as a church. So preaching the Bible uh, should lead us uh, to engage the culture that we live in, not run from it. Jesus <clears throat> wildly pursued the lost in his culture. So if you ever feel a temptation to seclude yourself and hide away from those around you, it's probably a teaching that hasn't come from the Bible. Because the Scriptures say that, that perfect love casts out fear. So when the, we're molded into that image of perfect love, Jesus encourages us and leads us to engage in the culture around us. And, and lastly, this is probably the scariest one. Uh, the teacher's resemble the flock. The teachers resemble the flock. Matthew 7, 15 and 16 says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. <clears throat> we, we, we live in a culture that, um, that devalues uh, church membership uh, to a degree that we just say, hey, I'll just pick and choose the truths that I want to hear. And, and, and I, get, I love technology. I love podcasts. I love being able to listen to these great preachers. But friends, God has given us the local church and no amount of technology can ever supersede the physical presence of the local church in a community. The shepherds of the church, the elders of the church are protecting you from false teaching. So, so when we wander out and we kind of go at it on our own, we have no one looking out for us. And we often falsely assume that we can, we can discern that truth on our own without the, without the plan that God has in place for us to protect us from false teaching. And so I'll just say this real bluntly. Uh, you ought to be checking me out every single week. Every single week. Uh, because if I ever say things that are contrary to the Word of God, I want to serve a church that's going to call me out on it. And I want to have elders in the church that aren't going to be yes-men. They're going to challenge us to preach the Word of God even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it's not popular. 
So, I want to encourage you not to put your confidence in any man. Any man that ever stands up here or any church that you'll ever be in. Now, if that man preaches the Word of God, what you're placing your confidence in is not man, but the Word of God, the living God in that man. That's what you're putting your confidence in. Some of you are uh, becoming aware in the new year of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a concept uh, called muscular atrophy. Let me explain. You've been to the gym? I just heard somebody talking about it today. You've been to the gym? I, I, Megan made me do squats this week. Y'all know what squat, squats are? You know, squats except with weight on my back. Megan made me do that this week. I couldn't do stairs for three days. I mean, I'm trying to carry the kids. I'm falling down. Muscular atrophy happens whenever you don't use your muscles for a period of time. They lose their strength. Churches can experience theological atrophy in the exact same way. So what's that mean? We, when we don't exercise the muscle of sound doctrine and theology, we lose the strength that it gives us. And what do you do when you experience muscular atrophy? Well, you may start walking with a walker uh, or with a cane or using a wheelchair. The same is true for the church. We start trying to crutch ourselves on other things than the Word of God when we experience theological atrophy. So we ought to be pushing ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into the Word in the context of community. And that's how the Spirit of God guides His church. I pray that that is the church the New City Church is becoming and will continue to become. The most, I think one of the most common forms of false teaching in our context today is, is this. That truth is found through experience. Truth is found through experience. Um, and really, when you boil it down to its essence, it's really nothing more than secular humanism. Which says uh, that humans are innately good and can find the truth on their own. Jesus has something different to say about it. I want to read John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 to you. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, if you abide in My Word, you're truly My disciples. And here's the key part. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So first, you will know the truth when you abide in My Word. Then the truth will set you free. There's a sequence there. There's a chain reaction there. When you know the truth, the truth sets you free. So that's what the Bible says, but our culture says this. Be free to experience life, and you'll find the truth. If you just had more experience, if you just put yourself out there to live a little, you'll find the truth. But friends, we're too bad. We're too flawed to find the truth on our own. This is why the truth had to come to us. John 14.6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The truth had to come to us because we couldn't find it on our own. I pray that we are a church that seeks the truth. Let's move on uh, to look at 1 Timothy 5-11. through This is really the kind of the guts of the message here. I'm going to read it for us, especially 5-7. through Because Paul talks about all of these different types of false teaching, which are important, but the crux is verse 5-7. through He says, the aim of our charge is that y'all would preach sound doctrine. No. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the whole thrust of this thing is love. Well, actually, there's four components. He talks about the idea of the law, about love, about faith, and about conscience. So I want to take a few moments to, to talk about how those all work together. Uh, let me give you a statement that kind of summarizes what I'm about to tell you over the next ten minutes. Let your conscience, given by faith through the Spirit, guided by Scripture, and controlled by love, be your guide. I often get the question, what's the will of God for me? You often ask that question, right? You want to know what God's will is. When these things are in place, there's really not a question of what God's will is because our conscience guides us. But our conscience, as we'll talk about, is only as good as the material that's downloaded on the hard drive. So let's talk about the law. Martin Luther and uh, Calvin agreed that there are three uses of the law for the Christian. I'm not going to go in. I could preach a whole three sermon series on this. I'm just going to briefly tell you uh, what these are. And the reason why I want to mention these is because Paul is pointing out in the Ephesian church how they have uh, violated the law of God. If you take the Ten Commandments and this list of sins that Paul talks about here, you can basically line them up together. He, he talks about every sin except covetousness, which is the Tenth Commandment. He talks about other, all other nine commandments in the sins that he lists. So what he's trying to show them is that they're flawed. That they're violating the law of God. So how could they be walking in the will of God if they're violating the law of God? So let's talk, quickly talk about the three purposes of the law for Christians. So what's the Old Testament mean for me as a Christian? Should I just throw it out? You know, that's so, you know, OT, I don't want to go there. No, it's all together. The canon of Scripture is all necessary for us. So the first one is this. They're kind of three images. A mirror. The law is a mirror to Christians. So through the law, here's what we see. We see who God is, and we see who we are. Both are necessary for us to walk in godliness. We have to know who God is, and we have to know who we are. And so what the law does is it brings clarity in a broken world. It tells us what God is like. And this is necessary because we cannot create clarity on our own initiative because we are flawed and broken by sin. So God comes to us. And so the first role of the law of God in the life of the Christian is to absolutely crush you. Paul says, I think it's in verse 8 and 9, that, that they were using the law unlawfully. They were using the law unlawfully. So what's that mean? They were using the law to elevate man through comparison instead of crushing us to show our absolute and utter need for a Savior to come and redeem us. So when we read the Old Testament, we are convicted because we see that we can never live up to what God says uh, His will is. And so the first thing, it is a mirror to us just like when you look into a mirror, you see reality. The law of God shows us our reality and who God is as well. So I would encourage you to do this. When you read the Scriptures and you are convicted by sin, don't circumvent that conviction because God wants to show you how good Jesus is in it. He wants to show you how glorious Jesus is. The second one is a curb. The law is a curb. So, so everyone, everyone that has ever been made by God 
whether they acknowledge Him or not, whether they are part of His church or not, uh, benefit from the law of God because the law is a curb. So God gives common grace. So we are totally depraved individuals. We're super sinful. But we're not absolutely depraved people. And we know that because we're alive today. If we were absolutely depraved, we'd all murder each other. That's what we do. So even if people don't acknowledge the law of God as something that they enjoy and something that they revel in because of God's grace, they are benefiting from it. The last is a guide. The law is a guide to us. Uh, It being Martin Luther King Jr. uh, weekend, and we're celebrating his life as as a country, I wanted to share a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. He says this, One day, we will learn that the heart can never be totally right when the head is totally wrong. So what's what's, what's MLK saying there? He's saying that that our heads have to be renewed, our minds have to be renewed so that we can trust our hearts. Follow your heart is the worst wisdom that anyone can give you apart from it being changed by God. Have you ever had someone tell you, just follow your heart, honey, just follow it. Just trust your heart, follow your dreams. I would follow it into a ditch, I promise. That's what I would do. Our heart is only as good as the change that's been wrought in it. So, let's keep moving here. Um, what, I, what I've noticed about this list of sins that he discusses here uh, when he talks about, uh, kind of picking up in verse uh, 9 here, where he says, Uh, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So he's talking about the law as a mirror there. That's the the function of the law he's he's talking about there. He says, uh, for the the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine. He lists all of these sins because He's calling them out. Because what Paul is saying is that when your head is fixated on the things of God because you've been saturated in the law, in the Word, in the truth of God, your behavior follows it. Your behavior follows your actions. And uh, uh, your, I'm sorry, your, your, your behavior follows the truth that's been instilled in your mind. And, and what he's saying is that conduct matters. Uh, so church, if we don't call a spade a spade, how would the world around us ever know who God is? Now, what we're going to talk about next is sometimes we do this without love. And that's not the right way to do that either. So we could all look at this list of sins as he's going through here. We could all find ourselves guilty of something on that list. But the point he's making is the law should lead us to see that we're absolutely hopeless without God. Secondly, love. We see uh, that love isn't something that we bring to God, but it's something that God brings to us. We can only love because God has first loved us. Now, this love is different than the type of love that our culture thinks about. The word here in the Greek is agape. And there are, there's uh, three different types of love in the, in the Greek language. And agape is this self-sacrificing love. This love that uh, involves pain and hardship. It's the love that Jesus poured out so that we could belong to God. 
that we could be one back to the Father. And, and I would say this, love isn't God's love if it never stings. If God's love doesn't sting you sometimes, if it doesn't hurt sometimes, it's probably not God's love. Because as I said earlier, the Father disciplines those that He loves as the book of Hebrews says. So let me read to you about God's this type of God's love from 1 John chapter 4. He says this. We're going to ease our way through it. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So these guys were not loving in their teaching because they were leading people astray. It wasn't funneled through love. In this love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He had loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So guys, this is the aim of the whole Bible. Genesis to Revelation. That the love of God might be made known to us. I, I am convinced over and over and over again that I would say 90% of Christians do not actually believe in the reality that God loves them. Let that, let that sink in. Many times we don't actually believe that God loves us. We think that God is mad at us. That He's this tyrant king who doesn't care about His kingdom. Who doesn't care about His people. But in the deepest, darkest crevices of your heart, love means that you are fully known in those places and accepted through the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ to us. So God, we, th we often think that God is the same as the culture around us, that He would give us a to-do list to prove ourselves. But God rips up the to-do list and He says, it is finished. You can sit and you can soak in the love of God because of Jesus. You can be confident even when you mess up, that God isn't breaking that covenant with you. He's not going to get a divorce for you. He hasn't called up the divorce attorney to say, hey, let's get the papers rolling. He's in this with you. That's why He sent His Son to secure the promise for us. God is love and He loves us. So church, if you're in Jesus, would you believe that today? Would you believe that you are deeply loved by our Father. And when you begin to grasp that truth, everything in your life changes. But most of the time, we're too afraid to let ourselves be known before God. But I think what we'll see is that there's an invitation there to experience God in a way that we've never seen before. And it's so comforting. Thirdly, faith. So he says, you know, the aim of his charge is love with a, through a sincere faith. So what is faith? Faith is this gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's a gift of God uh, for us. By grace, through faith, we've been saved. It's a gift of God. So without either uh, the law or the gospel, we are, we are utterly desperately lost without God. So the law tells us that we're really bad. That's what it does. The gospel tells us that Jesus is really good. And we need both of those realities in our life at all times. That we're both really bad and that Jesus is better than we think He is. And so faith is what, what attaches us to those promises. Now, kids that are in here, I have an illustration for you to explain this. 
our tendencies are to, to kind of jump in one of two ditches. One is to love without the law. The other is to law without is to is to is to speak the law without love. But I think Jesus presents us another way. The law with love equals the gospel. So let's just say, you know, Tatum and Caden are in here with me this morning. Uh, let's just say I never disciplined Tatum and Caden. Let's just say uh, I, I love them so much, so I'm just going to let them uh, <clears throat> follow their heart. I'm just going to let them find their way, and I'm going to try to keep them alive. So, uh, so guys, I mean, as many donuts as you want to eat this morning. I mean, come in, take the whole box. I don't care. Follow, follow your heart. Caden, as much TV as you want to watch, brother, as much as you want to watch, just watch it all day long. In school, I mean, if y'all want to go to school, it's cool with me. If not, it's cool too. Whatever you want. This is what love without the law looks like. It sounds good, doesn't it, kids? It sounds good. They're all shaking their heads. This is awesome. You know what it leads to? Death. <laughs> That's the law without love. So what's law? Uh, I'm sorry, that's love without the law. Law without love. Let's just say, uh, I'm such a hard man to Tatum and to Caden that they never see the ways that God is working in their life. So I always point out that their room is not clean enough. Even if it's like meets military specs, I can still find something wrong with the room. And you know those household responsibilities that we have, guys? Well, the floor was just a little too dirty under the kitchen table after dinner. I'm just this hard man. And I hold you to these responsibilities that no one can live up to. Sounds bad, doesn't it, kids? Sounds real bad. That's, that's an example of the law without love. Now, what's the law with love look like? So we hold Tatum and Caden to keep their responsibilities in our house that are placed in their lives for God's glory and their good. There may be times where they need to be disciplined. There may be times where they need to be corrected. But it's done in love. And they find out that they can best serve God as children uh, and obey God through obeying mom and dad, as the commandment says. So God gives us faith to believe that both the law and the Gospel are completely true and we need them both desperately. Now, fourthly, as we kind of land the plan on this point, conscience. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I've always been a little confused when it comes to that word conscience. You know, it's that little voice in your head that, uh, that talks to you, and, and, and you kind of get this feeling sometimes that maybe I'm not doing what I should do, or, or maybe I sinned against that person, but I'm not real sure, so what should I do with it? Our conscience is only as good as the content of truth that it reveals to us. Our conscience is only as good as the content of truth that it reveals to us. The conscience is powerful. This is why Paul talks about this idea of a, as a seared conscience being useless. As it being, as it being hard to follow God with a seared conscience. And a seared conscience comes from progressively uh, going against and blaspheming the conscience that God has given us. Uh, so, so Romans 12.2 talks about this idea of the renewal of the mind. I want to read this Scripture to you. It says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it doesn't mention the idea of conscience, but it alludes to it. The renewal of the mind. Now, 
A lot of times people look at this verse and they think renewal is something that we do. If I could just renew my mind more. But when you look at the original language here, renewal is a noun, not a verb. The renewed mind comes from the Holy Spirit when we receive Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you have a renewed mind. The question is, have you flexed the muscle or are you experiencing atrophy? That's the question. The renewed mind is something that we already have. It's ours to live out. As Martin Luther said, it is the nature of all hypocrites and false prophets to create a conscience where there is none. People want to convince you to follow their agenda, to, to be indoctrinated with their conscience, their stream of consciousness, and, and to cause the conscience to disappear where it does not exist. Friends, the Scripture builds a sturdy conscience that we can trust, and the Holy Spirit activates it as we walk through life. So let me sum up everything that I've said. Let me sum it up. Let your conscience, given by faith through the Spirit, guided by the Scriptures, and controlled by love, be your guide. This is what Paul is saying it needs to look like for the church to thrive. When we ignore our conscience, how are we to be guided by God? When, when, when we're not founded on sound, healthy doctrine, how are our consciences know what to convict us of and what to lead us into? And if it's not wrapped up in love, then who is it serving other than God? Those are questions that we could ask ourselves. Lastly, I want to mention Paul's testimony. Because basically what Paul says is, let me show you what it looks like for the love of God to come upon a sinner's life. Let me read it to you. Just verses 12-17. through 17. Just, just listen to the heart of this man. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. What's Paul saying? Guys, I was every single one of those things that those guys are in Ephesus. That was me. That's my life. But, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. Paul's saying, I'm the worst sinner. and he's, This isn't false humility. I'm the worst sinner. in order that Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He talks about this mercy that overflows from the love of God melting His heart. Have you been melted by the love of God? God works through His Spirit, through His truth, conforming us to the image of Jesus. The close of the story, I was listening to a testimony um, of, an of an Ethiopian man this week. and um, this, this man's father uh, was, a, was a satanic priest. Pretty dark 
stuff. And um, he would make this, this boy just do ridiculous things. And this guy said that um, eight out of the 12 children died before they were five years old. And this guy didn't have a name until he was five because they didn't know if he would live. This guy worshipped the enemy with all of his might. And this entire Ethiopian village of 400 people worshipped Satan. And one night in a vision, the love of God came and melted this guy's life. Melted him. I love that he doesn't say, he doesn't, he doesn't give credit to anything other than the love of God. He, he caught a glimpse he caught a glimpse of what eternity without God was like going down the same road that he was on or a different story that could be an eternity with God. And he was absolutely melted by the love of God. And crazy things began to happen in this guy's life. Like he was completely illiterate. And the only th- but he could read now, but the only thing he could read was the Bible. Like he would try to read other things, but the only thing he could read were the Scriptures. And his son is giving testimony about him. And his son was converted. And so this guy goes four days after he becomes a Christian. After the love of God melts him. And he gives testimony. All he knows, all I know is that I've been changed by the love of God. He gives testimony about this. And the entire village in Ethiopia converts 400 people. Because the love of God melted this guy. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying that God's mercy in his life is an example for the world to see. Is God's mercy in your life an example for the world to see? Has the love of God melted you? Do you hold out the law that convicts, shows you how bad you are, and the glorious gospel of how good Jesus is for the world to see? Because when we do this, evangelism, friends, is effortless. It just spews out of us. Let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for Your truth. It's heavy. It's rich sometimes mysterious. But we know that You give us everything that we need for godliness. And so Father, today we have probably all been convicted in some way. We've probably all been encouraged in some way. And I hope that we're all being melted in that same way by the love of God. So Father, would You come meet us now as we go to the table. The table of Jesus where we're reminded of the melting love of God that that shapes us, that conforms us uh, to His image as we hold out these sacraments. And we long to be made more like Him uh, as we walk uh, in the truth and love. It's in Jesus' name.